Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Braun Body Podcast. As you know, I'm your host, Dan Braun. Today, things are a little different. You probably noticed that on Monday when I released a solo episode because that hasn't happened in months. So today, I've actually got six different guests on the podcast. That's the most I've ever had in one shot at one time. And this is the longest episode of the Braun Body Podcast to date. It's a really good one, and it really highlights a lot of key issues within the world of women's sports. So essentially, we talked uh, with all six of these different athletes, coaches, officials, you name it, uh, about their experiences and perspectives within the world of women's sports, the issues that they've seen and experienced, what they think should be done about it, all that sort of thing. So we really covered all the bases here. I think there's some awesome topics and awesome discussion that took place, and I really hope that you all listen to this episode and really take away some key points from it, and hopefully we can make some changes that need to be made as a result of that. So who are these six amazing ladies that I keep talking about? We have Julie Burrell, Ariana Camille, Kasaya Ray, Bridget Finn, Michaela Koenig, and Emma Lee. Some of those names might sound familiar. Uh, You're actually going to end up seeing some of those names again in the near future. Uh, So a lot of stuff going on here. About each one real quick. Julie, she's a 2019 graduate of the University of Scranton. Uh, That was their exercise science program that she graduated from. She's currently in the DPT program at Scranton. She's going to graduate in 2022. At the collegiate level, she played field hockey for four years. She's uh, very similar to me as far as health values, beliefs, interests. Uh, And again, you know, you might see her name again here soon. For more on Julie, you can find her on Instagram at goalsetmindset underscore JB. And uh, I almost forgot to mention She's the one of the strength coaches at the University of Scranton, and she works very closely with the women's field hockey team. She has her CSCS through the NSCA. Uh, Kasaya is a junior at Lebanon Valley College. She's studying exercise science, and she's a member of the women's basketball team. And one of the things that she's going to talk about quite extensively is she actually tore both of her ACLs within a very short period, uh, time period of one another back in 2019. So she has some interesting perspectives on injuries and how to overcome them and keep moving forward. Michaela, she's a student physical therapist. She's here at LVC as well. She's a former uh, collegiate basketball player who unfortunately suffered a career ending injury. And that kind of took her from being a player into a coach and officiating role. So she actually referees different games and that sort of thing. Uh, She's also very involved in D3 event staff coordination here at the college and helps out with the athletic office. Uh, She's done some awesome stuff in the past uh, as well as far as this sort of thing goes. Back in 2017, she attended a uh, excellence forum put on by the NCAA, which is where she actually developed a passion for female sports and the issues within it. Ariana, as you know, uh, her name's kind of familiar. She's no stranger to our podcast. She's a professional dancer, choreographer, and model who has actually traveled the world and danced around the world. She's received over a 
decade of training in dance. And anytime I have a question about ballet, salsa, barre, Pilates, any of that sort of thing, I usually direct it to her because she is very knowledgeable there. She's also got an extensive background in mindfulness, Pilates, and she's currently in college studying communications. So for more on Ariana, head over to arianacamille.com, check out her website. And again, I did mention she is a choreographer. So if you, maybe you have a wedding or something coming up and you need some choreography done, she would be a good one to reach out to as far as dances and that sort of thing goes. Bridget is a former uh, soccer player here at LVC. She's also the vice chair of the Division Three National Student Athlete Advisory Committee. She's the president of the Middle Atlantic Conference Student Athletic Advisory Committee. And she's the president of Lebanon Valley College's Student Athlete Advisory Committee. She's also a certified personal trainer through the American College of Sports Medicine, and she's currently wrapping up her bachelor's degree in exercise science. She'll be graduating in May of this year. For more on Bridget, you can find her over on Instagram at BridgetFin underscore CPT. And last but not least, we have Emma Lee. Emma grew up over in Sacramento, California, and then attended the University of Washington for undergrad, grew up doing gymnastics. She was participating since age two and went all the way up to level 10, which is basically the highest level uh, you can reach in gymnastics. You might remember that from our gymnastics episode with Michelle um, a couple months ago. And in college, Emma was on a D1 team briefly before before becoming the team manager, and she's going to talk about what all happened there. Uh, she also holds a master's in sports management and currently works at DraftKings. So that was clearly quite a mouthful. These ladies are very impressive, and they're doing a lot of stuff. They're very different in the sense that they've got different experiences. They're from different parts of the country. But they're also very similar, and you'll see that their stories and experiences actually overlap quite a bit. Uh, so we're really excited to bring you this episode, and it's an episode that's not really about me. It's about the guests, which is what I want it to be. So tune in for this one. I know it's a long one, but I promise it's a good one. It's really worth it. I've certainly learned a lot from it, and I hope that you listening to this learn a lot as well and kind of gain some new perspectives and insights on the issues within uh, the fields of athletics. And uh, hopefully we lead to some new creative solutions as a result of this. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy the show. I wanted to add that we kind of split this show up into two separate parts. So the first part, this was all recorded in one day. Uh, the first part features Julie, Kasaya, Ariana, and Michaela. The second part features Bridget and Emma. I almost forgot to mention that. So it's uh, sort of a two-episode-in-one kind of special here. Enjoy. All right. So thank you all for agreeing to be here and joining us on this episode. So in your own opinions, in your own words, what's going on with women's sports? What issues have you experienced? Have you seen uh, firsthand? This is open to anyone. <laughs> All right, so I'll get started here. Um, so my name is Julie and I was a female athlete my entire life all through college up until I got to um, physical therapy school. 
And now I get to participate more on the coaching side of things um, within female athletics. And one thing that stands out to me as a strength and conditioning coach and a previous athlete um, is definitely the misconceptions and stereotypes, if you will, um, around strength and conditioning and around strength training in general for female athletes. In terms of, especially at the college level, um, we know that there's definitely some inequality in terms of like money and, um, you know, budgeting and stuff like that, where female sports aren't getting all of the resources that they need. But more than that, I think that one of the problems is just this overlying picture that female athletes don't need to lift weights or shouldn't lift weights. Um, when in reality, female athletes need strength training more than men, in my opinion. I think too, um, I think I come from a really unique perspective, having be, being able to be a seventh grade middle school basketball coach, and then also kind of stepping out of that role and becoming an official and putting on those stripes. So in that role, I see a lot of young girls who look up to me and are think that it's really cool to be able to officiate their game. And they want to know more about it because most of the time you think officials of men, specifically maybe even older men, and we need to look at how are we recruiting people to get into this role? Because if we don't have people to replace and filter through, how are we gonna progress sports to play more games and may have a longer season, extend playoffs and do all those things without recruiting the right amount of people? I think another issue is like, there's this misconception that women's sports somehow are less than men's sports. And uh, this one moment popped into my head. It was my freshman, I play basketball here. And it was my freshman year. It was like freshman orientation. And we had to do like community service with all the other athletes. And I was talking to this kid. Um, he was just asking me like, what sport I play? I was like, oh, I played basketball. And he goes, oh, that's cool. Like, I'll probably come to the games, just the guys though. And I was like, why are you like telling me this? I was just like, that's so just the fact that he felt the need to like say that. I don't know. Maybe he was just immature, but that moment has like stuck with me. Like it, I laugh about it now, but like it kind of stuck with me like ever since freshman year and now I'm a junior. So. So um, my name is Ariana and I come from the dance world. So in dance, a lot of the issues that um, women face are largely caused because there is so many women within the dance field and not enough jobs versus there's a higher demand for male dancers. There's just less boys who go into dance and they're just more needed. So because of that, there are already high expectations for what dancers should be able to do and unrealistic expectations of what dancers body should look like but for women that is multiplied so much because there is so much competition within the dance field for um, women just to give a quick example of the really large difference between men and women in the dance field um, a typical audition I've been to the company's auditioning they need four women and four men and at the audition there show up over a hundred women and eight men so obviously, there is a large um, pressure that women face, and this is exacerbated by just unrealistic expectations of what female dancers' bodies should look like and what is desirable. 
Right. So it sounds like a lot of these issues really overlap is we've got issues with body image and the physical side of things. Uh, Julie brought this up with the uh, women's weightlifting and strength and conditioning. Uh, we know that women, uh, female athletes especially, are at higher risks for things like ACL tears, a uh, lot of different things. And strength and conditioning can make a huge difference in this population. And I mean, we all saw the NCAA thing. We all know how bad the um, inequality was at the, you know, division one level on, you know, full public display. I think there's a lot of overlap there. And obviously that kind of impact there carries over onto the court and ultimately to the fans is if the athletes don't have access to what they have or what they need to train as hard and prepare themselves physically, then when it comes time to play or put, uh, perform in whatever aspect, whether it's dance, track and field, basketball, uh, soccer, you name it, uh, they're probably not going to play to their peak potential because they haven't had everything they need to prepare for it. And that's probably going to carry over to the fan side of things like Kasaya brought up people might look at the sport differently and it's not the athlete's fault. They're doing everything they can, but obviously when one team has access to barbells, power racks and weight plates, and the other team has access to 20 pound dumbbells and a yoga mat, there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, so I think this is almost like a little bit of a funnel right now, how one thing leads to the next lead to leads to the next uh, cascade effect. Um, I'm curious to hear if any of you have any thoughts on that or anything else that you want to bring up on this. I know recently the Mac has, I would say within the past three years now, since I've been working for the athletic department at LVC, the Mac decided to change tip times, tip off times for men's and women's basketball, because it used to always be girls at six, men at eight, people would come for the girls game maybe they catch the end of it but then we always had a bigger crowd for the men's game when we were wondering why can't we have men play first bring in that crowd maybe they hang out watch a little bit more of the women's game so when we did make decide to make that switch as a mac and commonwealth freedom we did we did see actually people get up after the men's game and still leave because they didn't want to stay and watch the women's game so we we're trying to still tackle that and how we can work with tip off times and getting the maximal amount of fans because people do, there are people out there who do enjoy watching women's basketball and it is just as competitive as the men's side. So it's figuring out what you can do and what the female athletes can do to make people want to stay and watch them. No, I, I get that. And it's uh, that's a hard problem to tackle is you, you even looking at that, you shouldn't have to completely rearrange the schedule on someone in order to uh, make it equal, so to speak. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the different uh, videos on Facebook or YouTube where they'll go around college campuses and ask people different questions and they'll record their responses to them. Uh, I, the one guy I know watches PragerU a lot. And all I could think of is why don't they do one of them uh, when it comes to women's sports here? So maybe go up to someone and just ask, you know, what, what uh, sporting events do you attend? 
and then say, oh, you know, why don't you attend the women's ones or something like that? Because I feel like the responses you get would be pretty interesting. Uh, now, kind of opening it up a little more onto some of these uh, specific topics here. Uh, how do you think something like the physical side of things, we'll start there, um, impacts your respective areas? So when we think about physical uh, side of things with women athletes, we think body image, body positivity, we think strength and conditioning, overall training, and ultimately injury risk. Um, from the four of you, how have you kind of seen that manifest uh, personally, whether it's for dancing and uh, modeling, um, for field hockey, basketball? Uh, just curious to hear your thoughts there. I definitely think it's getting better um even within the last like five to ten years you know when i think about myself back in like middle school and early high school strength and conditioning and weight training was not talked about at all in any of the sports that i played um, and then looking at now i also worked as a sports performance coach for a while at a local um sports performance gym and we had a ton of middle school and young high school female athletes who would come in and they would be excited to strength train and especially having a role model like a female trainer working with them, it definitely was a catalyst. And it was so cool for me seeing these young girls kind of learning from the start that this is just the way that it's done. So I think that one of the best ways to tackle it is when you get an athlete at the college level, let's say they're you know 20 years old and you try to convince them at that point that strength training is important might be a little bit harder to get through to them if they already have have struggles with you know what they think it might do to their body but if we can make more of an impact at the middle school level when these girls are you know starting to really get into the out of their sport training type stuff um, and just say hey this is the norm this is what all athletes do no matter what gender you are I think that that's definitely becoming better um, and you know hopefully we'll just kind of carry over and trickle down to those higher levels if we start earlier. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, in like when I was in middle school and high school, we were introduced to like weight training. So like, like in high school and stuff, we fell in love with it. Like we knew, okay, this is going to make us get better. But I wish back then I at least would have had like the injury prevention stuff kind of talked about with me because I um, ended up tearing both of my ACLs um, within the past two years. So, I mean, as an exercise science major, like I kind of got to learn a lot through that experience, but I would agree, like there definitely needs to be like weight training introduced at a younger level and, but also the injury prevention. Cause I see that in my, my teammates, like the ones who haven't lifted a lot in high school, like now we're in college and like the only time they ever go to the weight room is when we have a scheduled team lift. Like they, they're never really going on their own, which is understandable, but if they would have had that in their earlier years, they might've like fell, like fell in love with it as other people did. Yeah, I also agree. It's very much the same with dance. Um, it depends on the specific kind of dance, but like, let's say ballet, uh, strength training or just any kind of cross training outside of dance is not really encouraged for young dancers, even though it's very, very important. Um, you know, with dance, you're, it's very repetitive, especially if you're only dancing one style, um, which of course that can lead to injury. Um, you know, in ballet, there's a lot of external rotation of the hips. So you need to do things like Pilates um, 
or just think that you're moving the legs so they're parallel and just strengthening different muscles so you're not constantly overusing um, other ones. So that definitely needs to be emphasized more in dance as well. I think it is it is getting better. And I think also as dancers get older and into their 20s and later, they start to realize on their own that they need to incorporate this. But definitely dance institutions, schools, training places, that should be know a given that there should be strength training besides just dance classes I also think that that's a very interesting point because that's actually what my health promotion project is on for our one course so we did a lot of research on ACL prevention programs specifically and it looks as if the ages between 12 and 16 that is our female athlete population that is at the highest risk of tearing their ACL specifically female athletes who play basketball soccer lacrosse anything more cutting but we also we reached out to different pro different places and trying to get access to ACL prevention programs that are out there and you either need to pay money to get them or you need to know find someone who's trained pay them or you have to figure out how to train yourself because some stuff is maybe it's not always the easiest thing for anyone else to pick up. You might need a little bit of guidance in the beginning. So we took it upon ourselves to change and kind of look at all these different programs and combine them into one thing and provide them to this select group of girls. And we're just trying to make the tiniest little impact on anything that we can, whether that's quadricep strength, hamstring strength, anything that we can do to help them maybe prevent an ACL injury. So we've been working around week week three with these girls and they're loving our beach body make made up workouts and they're enjoying what they're doing because they're working out with someone. But we also we also tried reaching out to a couple school districts to get like teams to buy in to see if we can have an impact within their teams. And it was very interesting that some of the schools told us no that we couldn't with their female athletes because asking them to do 15 minutes of exercise three times a week was gonna affect their school. <clears throat> so we were kind of shocked that schools were kind of turning us down and saying that ex like exercise wasn't gonna help them. So we were wondering like how, what schools are doing and like what they're kind of preaching to their athletes because things are optional when we're in the off season, even during season, you can say, oh, I have a test, I can't come, no big deal. But the schools, the schools are not even supporting these prevention programs. Uh, how does that differ for like Julie? I know you're at the University of Scranton. So I know your school's got a very different way of doing things from the traditional model, so to speak. So for example, you're currently uh, in grad school to be a DPT uh, and you're also the strength coach. So I'm curious to hear just kind of your take on that. Is your school <clears throat> kind of doing things better, you think? Or do you think maybe the traditional model would be better for the female athletes and all athletes in general? Yeah, I mean, the reason why I have that role, along with a few other um, DPT students, is because we don't have a full-time strength and conditioning coach at our university. I don't know if it's a funding issue or what it is. We've never had one. Um, so that being said, a handful of other DPT students and I step in and we write the programs and we train the athletes in the weight room. I think it's a really awesome opportunity for us, um, you know, to learn and kind of get our feet wet in the coaching space before becoming a PT. But I do think it's pretty cool for the athletes as well, kind of having somebody 
who was just in their shoes. Um, a lot of us were athletes at the university prior to getting into grad school. And I do find that the teams communicate with me very comfortably, um, especially the female teams that I work with and, you know, kind of look up to me in a way where they see how much college athletics has influenced me now in terms of how much I prioritize my health and fitness. Um, and, you know, for some of the girls who are really passionate about it and seeing how passionate I am about helping them, um, I do think that it, it makes them a little bit more like excited to kind of dive into some of the stuff because they see the long-term benefits, so to speak, of creating positive habits around fitness. But we definitely do struggle, I think, at, at our school with not having a full-time strength coach because at the end of the day, there's only so much time that we have to give as PT students. Um, there are a few of us who are certified strength and conditioning specialists. So that definitely helps in terms of like creating the programs. But I'm definitely one of the advocates um, who has spoken to athletics a few times, kind of trying to get a full-time strength coach on board and, you know, maybe having our help in addition to that. For sure. Um, our college here, we have one strength and conditioning coach for 25, 26 teams. So it's like a seven to 800 athlete to one ratio. Um, so I've kind of looked at the approach that you've used at your college. I like that a lot more in the sense that you have more individualized approaches to things, you know, instead of 25 teams to one coach, you get one or two teams. Um, so I think a hybrid model would be really nice there to kind of help resolve some of these issues. And I would think it's very practical for most colleges. Students don't make a, you know, 50, 60,000 a year salary plus benefits doing these things. Uh, so you can really save a lot of money and provide some very high quality stuff for the athletes, I would think. Yeah, I will say to another kind of parallel or I shouldn't say parallel, but another connection that we've drawn between our school not having one and other um, schools in our conference. So the University of Scranton is a division three athletic school um, in the landmark conference. And of our the eight or nine schools in our conference, about half of them have a full time strength coach and the schools that have a full time strength coach are also the schools that have a football team. So that kind of reminds me of some of these issues that we're talking about um, that, you know, just because they have a football team, they get a strength coach. It's like, hey, you know, what, what about the rest of us? So hopefully that's something that we'll see change, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, it only makes sense that that's correlated somehow, you know? We see that far too often, I think. Um... So with, within this kind of physical health realm, you've all spoken quite a bit on injuries and whether that's watching someone get injured, being injured yourself, or treating someone who's been injured. Um, how would you say the injury game goes for female athletes? How debilitating are these and how hard are they to come back from physically, mentally, emotionally? I mean, you're going through a lot with these. I mean, I don't know, I can't say the, that the experience is different for men per se, but I know like obviously we know ACL tears are much higher um, in females. And I know when I was coming back from my first um, ACL injury, it was always in the back of my head, like, oh, I could re-tear it. I could tear the other one. And then it did end up happening. So then I was like, okay, so now I've just become like essentially a statistic like I statistically this 
was more likely to happen to me than a male. So I, I mean, I think the injury sucks and it's mentally and emotionally and physically exhausting, like no matter if you're a male or female, but just because like we are more at risk for injuries like that, like that, that I know that definitely took like a mental toll on me. Yeah, I think it kind of depends on like the prior experience of the athlete before their injury. I guess one way it can kind of separate from male athletes is um, since female athletes tend to not be as involved in strength training, um, you know, to no fault of their own, but if they just weren't exposed to it at a young age, they may have a harder time with a more intensive rehab process like an ACL rehab or any sort of surgical procedure where, you know, they go to a physical therapist and they're told like, hey, we're going to lift these weights. Um, not that it's necessarily harder for them because they're females, but it's going to, that kind of stuff's going to be harder for any patient who's never done that stuff before. So I think that by exposing female athletes again at a young age to some of these basic resistance training principles, um, in case they do end up getting hurt, just like any other male or female athlete might get hurt, they at least can envision themselves, you know, working hard and strengthening and performing squats and whatever it is that the actual process entails, I just um, would assume that mentally it would be a lot easier. I think too, um, I had an injury that actually ended my basketball career and had me hang up my shoes. And that was, that was very mentally challenging for me to give up something that I had spent my whole life doing since I was in third grade. But I was able to let go of my player role and find another outlet to still be involved in the game. So I think that for athletes, men, women who do have an injury and they realize maybe I'm not going to be able to be at 100% or again, or I'm not going to make it to 75% of my previous capabilities, what other things can I do to be involved in the sport that I love and I have so much passion for? So I think that that is something that a lot of girls look up to, like female athletes that well, female athletes that used to play are now finally in these roles of officiating and coaching. And they're finally getting that little bit of spotlight where young girls are looking up to thinking like, that's really cool. Like that's something I want to do when I'm not playing anymore. Um, I actually would be interested to hear if this thing I'm about to talk about carries over to other sports. Um, because within dance, when a dancer is injured, there's kind of an expectation that you will push through that injury. This is getting better um, over time as people, you know, recognize that dancers are humans and rest is an important part of healing. Um, but, you know, dancers who push through injuries or perform when they're sick are kind of glorified and idolized, like, look how hard they're working. Um, and obviously that's, that's very damaging because then it can even end your career because maybe it was a minor injury, but you keep dancing on it and then it exacerbates the injury. So just kind of to share a really short experience on, to explain this point, um, when I was training to be a ballet dancer as a teenager, um, you know, we train in point shoes. So we're dancing on our toes. Um, at one point I developed pain in my toes and I didn't know what it was at first. I had, I had to go to a doctor. Um, but I told my ballet teacher, like, you know, suddenly dancing on point is it's not comfortable in general but it's really painful like I I, I start crying when I'm on my toes because I'm in so much pain and she looked at me and said I think you just need to get used to the pain and I was like okay 
found out, went to a doctor, found out I had infections in my toenails and actually TMI, but I had to get my toenails removed. So that was the whole thing. But you know, like I could have treated that earlier and not felt like, oh, I'm just being weak. No, I, there's something wrong. And I was dancing on point fine for all these months. I don't suddenly have a low pain tolerance. There's an issue going on. So um, that is, that is definitely an issue. And again, this is additional issue for women because there are more women dancers we are kind of taught you know you are replaceable if you can't do the part you know she will um but there are directors who are starting to you know recognize the humanity and dancers so dancers need to also advocate for themselves when there's an injury and not feel like they have to push through and you know if your director wants to put you to push through that or is gonna cut you from the piece and put another dancer in because you're injured you know maybe you don't want to be dancing there anyway so there has to be recognition from people in positions of power within dance but then dancers need to also you know if we start advocating enough if enough like stars in the dance world say i'm injured i'm not going to perform a change will happen so it comes on both sides i think there's definitely an extra challenge for you guys in the dance world too i mean just assuming i will be the first one to say i was never a dancer myself and i kind of wish i was because i can't dance at all but um, especially when you decide to kind of specialize in a certain type of dance, I assume you're doing a lot of repetitive movements, um, which can, you know, cause some problems down the road and kind of a question for you. So with like typical team sports, um, if we want to call them that, there tends to be like an in-season period and an off-season period. In terms of dance, do you guys have like in season or in performance or are you guys kind of just going hard all year round? Um, it, it is more of an kind of all year round, all life round type thing, less than seasonal. I mean, companies do have seasons and there's typically, you know, a, a few weeks off. Um, but there's just not much flexibility within that. Um, especially when you have performances, it's really difficult, even if you are sick or get an injury to kind of step back because there aren't many dancers within the company who can take over your role. Um, and even when you're not, you know, 100% on, um, it's the, the expectation is that you will continue to train on your own until the season restarts. But again, it's like most of the year, you might get a few weeks off. Yeah. No, that's, that's interesting stuff. Um, one of the things that really was running through my mind during this as well is you know, we talk about these injuries and it's not just getting recognized that, hey, something is wrong and we need to take care of it, but it's a matter of getting good physical therapy and good treatment from the medical side of things after the fact. Um, so I'll give a example. Uh, I'll mention my girlfriend. Hopefully she listens to this, um, but she had a uh, hernia, L5S1 uh, disc hernia. And this was in the posterior lateral direction. So you're supposed to treat this with extension-based exercises. Basic McKinsey principle here uh, for the PT people. Uh, however, her PT was treating her with flexion-based exercises and was using scraping, which is a manual tool with uh, these stainless steel things. They kind of look like medieval uh, torture devices if you've never seen one. And scraping her lower back until she was screaming in pain. Uh, and then he was trying to crack her back. He tried to do that every time she came in because he thought it was weird that he could never get her back to crack. Uh, and this was her rehab experience uh, for a disc hernia. And there's a lot of bad 
therapy bed rehab out there. I don't want to knock the profession like PT too bad because I am going into it. Some people here are going into it and it is essential, but we need to kind of step up on the after injury side of things. Uh, and even with Kasaya, I know you yourself, I mean, I'm sure if someone kind of helped you a little more to realize that, hey, you could re-injure this other one. Let's make sure we use a better progression on the one you have injured and talk to you maybe more about the different ways you could have rehabbed. Um, because I know your brother especially is very big into um, the rehab process himself, and he's probably had quite an impact on you. Um, it's more than just, you know, three by 10 with the TheraBand and a couple body weight exercises. There's a lot of things that go into it and we need to do better about individualizing the uh, therapies and kind of um, following the evidence a little bit better, uh, in my opinion. And maybe some of you, uh, especially you PT people and Kasaya could add to that a little bit. Yeah, that I loved my physical therapist. Like they were great. Like every time I went in there, it was not only like physical therapy, it was like emotional and like mental therapy for me too. Cause they were just like, great. But again, like you're right. It's, it's, it was very like cut and dry. Like every person who came in, no matter what, no matter the background, no matter age, like we all kind of did the same thing, which I understand. But as an athlete, like I wanted to get after it more. Like I knew like the difference between pushing through pain and like pushing to a point where like I was just getting stronger like that day. So like I would ask every single day, I'm like, well, can I do this? Like, can I do a little more? And they would just like keep saying, no, no, no. And I, I understood like, especially like with a background in exercise science, like as a current student, but again, like like you said, it needs to be more individualized. And I think it depends on like what um, like clinic or like what if it's like a, like a private or a um, public, uh, private, public. yeah, a private or publicly owned um, clinic. I think it's different, but definitely with me, it was very cut and dry. Cause like I was doing the same exercises as um, like an elderly um, individual who just had like a knee replacement, which again, some of the like very initial exercise you exercises you do yeah you have to do the same things but like as the weeks progressed on like I kind of just got bored almost so I would do things like on the days I wasn't in PT um with my brother and stuff and that's honestly where a lot of my progress like started started to take off because I was pushing myself but not to the point where I knew I was gonna like hurt myself yeah, I think another thing that can help in that space too, and re with rehab, it's tricky because the nature of physical therapy in our modern day world is it is unfortunately very like in and out and there's a ton of people and you don't get a whole lot of individualized attention. But I think that hopefully in the future, not just with female athletes, but with all athletes and patients, really getting to know a person, getting to know their why is so important for not only obtaining motivation, but assuring that they're going to get the best experience possible. And it can be as simple as, you know, obviously when we have an athlete, we know that they want to get back to their sport. That's the ultimate goal, but trying to create little goals in the process where the athlete's going to feel like they have some autonomy in their rehab and they're going to constantly be mindful and thinking of the process along the way. And another thing that just with athletes in general that I think really needs to be talked about is lifestyle factors um, especially with our female athletes, things like nutrition and, and sleep and stress management, 
you know, there's so many things, middle school, high school, college, I wouldn't even call one setting more stressful than the other. I mean, they all have their things that make them stressful. So female athletes, they tend to put more pressure on themselves. Like, let's understand that as coaches and trainers and have conversations about it and make suggestions as to how we can better them mentally, which is ultimately going to better them physically too, right? So hopefully that's something that we'll see kind of um, get more attention in the rehabilitation and, you know, training space. I think too, I can speak to that a lot through my physical therapy experience because I had one really great experience and that is what drove me to want to go to PT school and want to be a physical therapist and help somebody else. But my most recent experience, I was doing straight leg raises for eight weeks. I was only ever on a stationary bike. There was no progression in things that I could do to get me back to a certain level. So that also makes makes me think about this lack of individualized care that we are getting versus what we're learning in school. Because I know for us at LVC, we talk about all the time of individualizing our programs because every patient is different they might do the same exercise but it's going to be a completely different teaching method and we're going to have to instruct them in a different way so it's kind of figuring that out and translating that that teaching into women's athletics because I know for like coaching wise every day at the start of practice I ask my girls all right tell me about your day you have five minutes to tell me about how your day at school went how's this boy that we're talking to or whatever let's get these little giggles out and let's kind of get into this good mood, this good mindset, and then step aside, step onto the court and let's be productive at practice and get something done. And I think on days where we were lacking that kind of five minutes of like a little bit of goofiness that we did kind of perform a little bit low. We weren't doing drills, right? We, we had to recollect a lot of times. And I think that sometimes girls just need that outlet of, hey, I need five minutes to be a little goofy right now so I can put that aside and not think about it. And I can be focused for the two hours that I'm at practice. Yeah, and continuing on that um, need for individuality, I think that also ties in beyond physical therapy to things like menstrual disorders, which are very common in dancers. And I believe with all athletes really um, and like uh, Julianne said, how, um, you know, recognizing things that nutrition and stress are so important to the overall health of, of athletes and those factors really contribute. Um, so specifically in dance, something that I really want to help debunk is that while eating disorders are, I think, more common in dancers than the general population, not all dancers have eating disorders. And I say this because um, Sometimes when things like menstrual disorders are being treated, um, a gynecologist will kind of just assume it's because of an eating disorder when they hear that someone's a dancer instead of you know getting to really what is the root of the problem. So I, I did some research into some stats on eating disorders in dancers and it, it really varies. I'm not sure what the exact number is, but a study I looked at from the Eating Disorder Association said that 12% of dancers had eating disorders um, specifically ballet dancers, it was slightly higher, 16%. But that's, that's still, there's so many other factors. And I know that I had um, lots of problems with my menstrual cycle once I started training because the training really intensifies in dance when you're going through puberty in your teenage years. Um, so for, I, I went to the gynecologist. I had lost a lot of weight in the past year because that was the year when I started training six hours a day. Of course, there's going to be body changes. 
Um, and she was asking me questions, you know, like, have you had like hair falling out? Are you restricting your eating? And I, I was answering no to these questions. And I guess some people, yeah, they could be in denial and lying, but I wasn't. And she didn't take into account the fact that I had drastically increased my um, training time and that I, she didn't ask me about my nutrition. I honestly wasn't eating as well as I should have that hadn't been taught to me in the dance world um, and things like that. So she wrote a list of, you know, therapists for eating disorders for me to go see, which I didn't because that wasn't my problem. But maybe, you know, a nutritionist talking more about those things. Are you getting enough sleep? Um, so it's just um, assumptions cannot be made because then I, I struggle with these problems for years and years. And I still struggle with some of the side effects of not having treated these issues earlier. So um, I don't know if anyone else has, has similar experiences, but I think, you know, we, we can't assume what someone's going through and at people in the medical field and physical therapy need to listen to the individual and really tailor the program or there's just not going to be the right results. Yeah, Adriana, I think you brought up a really good point. And I think that the biggest problem with nutrition in athletics and specifically with female athletes, it's not necessarily that females all have um, fears of eating or have some sort of eating disorder a lot of times it's just misinformation, you know, like athletes just straight up have no idea that they should be eating more than their friend that's sitting next to them. That is not an athlete. It's not because you're better than them. It's because you are expending more energy and you need more calories to perform well. Right. So I totally agree with you. I think this needs to be something that is talked about more. And I mean, whose job is it to talk about? That's kind of the tricky part. Cause everybody kind of tiptoes around it, you know? Um, but that's exactly it. And then the problem becomes when female athletes do start to learn about nutrition, then they're like, oh my God, I've been eating wrong for years. Like, oh, do I have a problem? Like, oh, do, do, do I have an eating disorder? And it's like, no, listen, like you didn't have the right information, you know, let's do things right. Let's eat more, let's eat more protein, whatever the problem might be. But I agree with you. There's, are they more prevalent amongst females? I'm sure they are. Um, but is that the biggest cause of not adequate nutrition amongst female athletes? Um, I don't think so. I, I think it's definitely more an education and a coaching thing than anything else. For sure. And this kind of creates almost a whole nother different cascade that we've kind of just discovered inadvertently here is the issues with uh, female reproductive health, uh, because we have plenty of stats that show in the first one to two days of the menstrual cycle, women are 30% more likely to tear their ACLs. Uh, but I'm sure no one's ever told you that in youth sports or, you know, middle school, high school, when all these things are happening, uh, say you tear your ACL, then uh, I'm then you've got this mental health cascade that follows because you've got the injury effect, plus you have the nutrition effect that julie just brought up um so this is kind of you know multiple downward spirals at play here and we're kind of hitting on the female athlete triad a little bit there uh as well i don't know if uh any of you are familiar with that but essentially you have a combination of menstrual disturbance and energy deficiency so caloric restriction and that creates uh, low, low bone mass or low bone density. And that triad, those three things can really wreck and destroy female health long term. Uh, and, you know, as an outsider to this, I feel like that's something that isn't being stressed enough on the sports health side of things. Uh, and 
I'm sure, you know, people like you, Julie, who are absolutely killing the game with everything you do and coaching and, uh, you know, Michaela, I know you, you know all of this as well when you're coaching uh, your athletes, you know, it takes people like you going out there and knowing that there's a problem and then working with the athletes to make a difference and, you know, the, thus being the change you want to see in the world. Um, so I, I think people like you are certainly where this kind of continues to the next uh, step here. Um, and before I um, end on that, I want to ask about the mental side of things with this, because we've talked so much about the physical and kind of hinted at the mental. Um, Ariana, I know we've talked extensively on this before, how you keep yourself mentally right and mentally sane during some of these uh, crazy long dance things, dance marathons and traveling the world. I mean, you know, all these things that you all go through as athletes, uh, especially female athletes, are crazy stressful. Um, and I mean, there's just a lot of moving parts to a lot of these things. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on mental health, how you maintain mental health, and how you're instilling mental health in your teammates, your athletes that you're coaching, um, all of that sort of thing. I think the the most important thing to do is to be that role model for them. And what you do isn't going to work for the next person is not maybe not even going to work for the next person, but it's showing them that you can be open about yourself. And you can kind of let a little bit of you shine through in that aspect to kind of open up to them and get them to realize like, hey, maybe, maybe this thing that I'm going through isn't okay. And maybe I should open up about it. Because a lot of times I think females are really afraid to share their feelings because they're going to come across as too emotional or any other word that people want to define them as. But I think that that is part of being a female. And maybe we are just a little bit more emotional, but we have to first with ourselves, we have to be comfortable with ourselves and expressing that and finding that person that we can go to and we can trust and opening up about this and talking about different ways to cope with it. And what can I do? Maybe, maybe physical activity is my coping mechanism. Maybe it's taking 30 minutes and watching a TV show. It's showing them and being that role model that it's okay and things are going to get better, but it's not handle. You can't just handle them by yourself. There has to be somebody there with you. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, Michaela. I think a lot of times um, when I look at women that I look up to in the world, whether it's in the sports performance space or whether it's just like badass women out there who are doing awesome stuff, um, a lot of what success and what leadership comes down to as a female is like getting comfortable with vulnerability. And especially when you're working in close quarters with, um, you know, younger women that you hope to have an influence on or that you kind of see your previous self in, I think that being open to show them what you do, um, you know, to be the leader that you are and what you do to take care of yourself, it definitely kind of sheds a light on the importance of a lot of things. Um, and one thing that I like to talk to my girls about, you know, I've worked with middle school girls and then I obviously work with females at the college level as well is to make sure that you're incorporating things in your day that like truly bring you joy. And you touched upon this, whether it's watching some Netflix or whether it's working out or, but like doing things for your mental health and doing things that make you feel good and relaxed 
will ultimately benefit you physically when you have more energy and your brain is more ready to go and train or to go and practice, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, as athletes in general, but as women, I think we are kind of hardwired to do 20 million things at once, right? It's how we've been since the beginning of time. Like, so it's not a bad thing that we sometimes crave having a lot of things on our plate. Um, I don't think it's something to frown upon. I think it's something to embrace, but it's definitely important to understand that having that balancing act of wearing a lot of different hats and being involved in a lot of different things means that there will be times that you need to step back and take some time for yourself in order to be able to fill all of those cups, um, you know, that you want to pour into. I would say um, maintaining mental health and dance as a woman is really embracing the fact that you are a woman uh, because I think the stereotypical desirable body images within dance don't really allow for women to embrace like all that they are um, because in dance there's kind of the the ideal body which varies again by dance style but um, it's kind of like that pre-pubescent girl where you're like flat chested narrow hips is very desirable especially in ballet and yeah some some women are like that their whole lives but a lot of women are and that's just unrealistic and trying to fit into that mold throughout your teen years and on is is really damaging to your mental health because it's just not realistic you know expectations for you to have a flat butt when you're strengthening your glutes like that just doesn't make sense and when a teacher is telling you that 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 will drive you insane so just you know embracing um your womanhood there's there are there are few dancers um certain aspects of the dance field like modern dance think they're more progressive i think they think more, they're more progressive than they actually are but there are some women like missy copeland who um she has a curvier figure and she's also more muscular so she kind of like defies two um areas of body image that aren't, aren't really seen in dance you know look looking up to her she owns her womanhood and so we are women, we are not girls. We, we grow up and you know our bodies change and that's, that's normal and that's also amazing and not something that we should feel bad about, like getting your period when you have a performance or a game or whatever, like not, you don't, shouldn't feel like you have to hide that, but like doing things that you need so that you can perform at a high level when you're going through those different cycles with your body and like embracing that and not trying to like push it down. So yes, we are women and we embrace it. <laughs> Mm. So with that, Julie kind of mentioned about having a role model, having someone that a female athlete can look up to. And, you know, for some people, I know there's girls in the past that I've talked with who look up to someone like LeBron James or Kobe Bryant. But obviously, we're living in an era now where we're, we're seeing uh, female athletes kind of do more things like um, I think her name was Sarah Fuller who was kicking uh, for the collegiate football team. Uh, we're seeing referees at the NFL level who are female. We're seeing umpires in the MLB who are female. Uh, the San Francisco Giants uh, MLB team have a female coach. Um, for you all, are there any specific female athletes that you look up to or um, who, who are your role models, I guess I'll say? In terms of athletics, um, ever since I was young and started kind of getting interested in the Olympics, 
the U.S. women's national soccer team is just like super badass and like everything that they're about and everything that they put out. Um, they've definitely been a team that's always been really fun to follow and they just have this I just think that like badass is the best word mentality where they embrace being women and they, a lot of them are mothers or their wives, you know, and um, they're able to do all of those things, but they're able to still be an athlete and train hard and be strong. And at that level, they're, you know, late into their twenties and their thirties. And I think that that's definitely something that's really inspiring to see women as they get older. Like, I feel like I mean, athletes in general, but especially female athletes, I think a lot of us peak in the high school and college years. And you oftentimes see women kind of fall off a little bit after that when they become, when they get married and have kids and whatever else. So I definitely think that just anybody out there who's showing that you can be a wife and a mother and a full-time employee and do all of these things and still embrace health and fitness, um, anybody who's doing that is definitely my role model and something that I hope to do in the future. And, you know, people can say the same thing about me one day. Yeah, I feel very much the same. The kind of women that I look up to are doing all these things. Like, uh, for example, Ingrid Da Silva, she's a dancer, uh, with Dance Theater of Harlem and she just became a mom and she's like breastfeeding her baby and taking her ballet class like she posts photos on Instagram where she's doing two things at the same time which I don't think she actually is it's probably just for the gram but you know it makes the point and it, it's really cool um, I definitely look up to women like this but I think we need to be careful because you know sometimes dance companies um, when they get one woman like like that who's kind of defying the stereotype they will um, kind of like showcase her more and say like, you know, like, look, one person has achieved it. Now, now we're there. Now it's possible for everyone. And we see the same women being looked up to for years and years and years. And we don't see as many new women entering those spaces. So I think it's important to look up to these women, but also realize just because there's one or two there doesn't mean that, you know, the doors are open for everyone and we need to keep pushing ourselves and seeing um, women who are slowly starting to enter those spaces and really encouraging them to keep going. My role model is actually a girl who's, she's three or four years younger than me. She went to my high school and um, when I tore my first ACL, she had just torn her second. So we like, we really bonded over that. And like, she probably didn't realize it in the moment, but she helped me so much through that time. And then even when I tore the second one, like, I was sad that I couldn't play, but I got to see her do like really amazing things that season because she had just come back. So yeah, that's, she's not anyone famous or anything like that, but yeah, she was, she's still my role model because she was an example for me on how to like overcome injuries, like with grace, like she's, she's an amazing girl. I'm not sure that I could even pinpoint a specific person or a specific group of people who have kind of been that role model for me. I think in within all the different activities that I've participated in and continue to participate in, there's always someone in all of these categories that I'm like, wow, like that's really cool that you can do that. Like that's something that I want to do. And I think that in my role, like specifically like in refereeing, like when I am with a lot of these older guys, a lot of them are really advocating for me to 
step up and they're trying to push me along to do all these different events and they want me to add this sport add this sport but it's nice seeing that from an older population that they are kind of pushing for me and pulling for me and want to see me succeed so that makes me feel like they do care about me and that they do want what's best for me that's uh that's very good to hear uh we like hearing that for sure um and huge thank you to all of you for sharing that because sometimes people keep you know that person they look up to a little more um personal and private to them um but with that i want to ask do any of you have any kind of final remarks closing remarks anything that we didn't talk about yet that you really wanted to discuss or bring up i'll say a closing remark because something that I'm super passionate about um, in the female athlete space is that whatever role we have in female athletics, whether you're still an athlete yourself, um, whether you're somebody on your college campus who goes to the gym and goes to the barbell when you go to the gym, or whether you're an official, um, let's do whatever we can to empower female athletes to be athletic and to do athlete things and whatever that looks like to them, whether it's lift weights, whether it's eat a bunch of food because they're really hungry, you know, whatever it is. Um, because what I care about the most is not just creating the best experience for female athletes while they're an athlete, but creating an experience that's going to carry through life with them. So as they enter into their 20s and 30s and beyond, they know that they have a strong, powerful body that can do anything that life throws at them. So I think that's the ultimate goal for all of us, right? We want to create this. We want to see more opportunities come up. We want to see more education. We want to see more conversation, but ultimately we just want female athletes to feel empowered enough to be athletic and fit and feel strong mentally and physically for their entire lives. And, you know, I think that the four of us here talking today, um, that's exactly the direction that we're headed, right? For ourselves and for whoever we interact with. So this was really great. Thanks for putting it together, Dan. Huge thank you to the four of you for your time, because as we've talked, it's kind of hard to come by some days. And huge thank you for all the stuff that you're doing in your own respective sports there, whether it's basketball, field hockey, larger at a high school level or college level or in the world of dance, which we've talked about extensively on past podcasts that you should totally go back and check out if you haven't already. Um, you're, you're all killing the game. Uh, and obviously the world needs more people like that, uh, especially in today's day and age. So thank you all so much for your time, for your commitment, and please keep doing what you're doing. So that's going to conclude our first part of this episode. And now we're kind of transitioning over into the conversation I had with Bridget and Emma about a lot of these same issues, some different ones, and we're going to hear their stories, experiences, and perspectives on them. All right. So in this section of the podcast, I've got Emma Lee and Bridget Finn with me, and they're going to be talking about their experiences uh, and perspectives on women's sports and women's fitness. Uh, so for Bridget and Emma, I guess we'll just start with what issues do you see? What issues do you experience? Have you experienced in your journey uh, as athletes and across your sports careers? What are kind of the big things that have really gone wrong, so to, uh, so to speak? 
So I can start off with that one. And I think, you know, I've gotten so many positives out of my athletic career um, with mainly soccer, but track and field, softball for a long time in high school. Um, and I've gotten so many great lessons that I've learned about teamwork and um, team building and just working with others in general. However, some of the leadership that I've had over the years and some of the coaches that I've had um, not being as experienced as others, I think that's been um, a pretty detrimental part of my journey. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I didn't necessarily have a great experience. Um, I loved this sport, so I continued it for myself, but the people that were supposed to encourage you, support you, didn't. And it wasn't that they didn't, it was just in a very unhealthy way and that kind of affected everything else in my life. So, um, you know, you see them as authority figures and you see them, like you spend most of your time with them. And so when they don't, um, when they don't support you in a way that you want, it just becomes harder for you to keep continuing the sport and just like you question yourself, like, why are you still doing this? So for me, that was kind of what I had at the end of my career. So, um, yeah. And yeah, I'd also say that growing up, I've had some really amazing coaches, the youth level, at the high school level, club level for soccer. And I'm so thankful that I've had the, that experience growing up because I, I was able to stick with it and they encouraged me to love the game and um, just grow my passion for my sport. But unfortunately, at that higher collegiate level is when I had the, the harmful experience. And that's when it, you know, it hit me. And I was like, you know, at that point in the game, when you're that much older and um, you have to put so much more time into it while balancing college and all these other things going on, it makes it a lot harder when you don't have the same support that you once had. Yeah, and I will say that, like, you know, going through college and then going through my master's program, like, I really never saw sports as a business. And, like, D1 athletics is 100% a business. Like, whether you like it or not, coaches will cut athletes that are great but they got hurt and they need to fill a position you know fill a scholarship and someone else is waiting um that's the unfortunate thing but you know after kind of like taking some time after you know I got cut I just like put that in perspective and it made me realize that like coaches depend on 18 to 22 year olds <laughs> for their job so they have to do what they need to do which is great but at the same time you're supposed to help them. You're supposed to support them. You're supposed to encourage them to, you know, for their life beyond sport. So it kind of, my experience was just kind of shifting that focus and, you know, really actually seeing it as a business rather than, you know, it is a sport that you love, but unfortunately like coaches are going to do what they need to do in order to survive essentially. So Right. So it kind of seems like for both of you, you were very engulfed in the world of sports growing up from young ages. I mean, that was kind of your life. And I mean, the things that you've experienced in the world of sports uh, growing up kind of when things went right, it impacted every aspect of your life. Um, and when things went wrong, it also kind of trickled over and impacted every aspect of your life, um, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally, I'm sure. Um, I, I can't speak on your behalf, but I'm sure those times were very challenging when things weren't going right and all that way. Um, and I think it's interesting how you bring up too, Emma, how sports are a business. We kind of forget that 
a lot of times that, you know, in America, it's all about the money. If you want to know how something works, just follow the money. Um, so I think those are both, you know, really interesting points and takeaways. Um, and I'm curious to hear more about that. I see you both unmuted. You both look ready to go. So, uh, you know, again, this is your, your time to shine. So feel free to keep going. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'll just also add, Emma, it's really cool to hear your perspective um, with the Division One, the business and everything, because at the Division Three level, you don't see that side as much. Um, there have been many issues with coaches in my experience, not just my coaches, but other coaches at the Division Three level that I've experienced. And a lot of the time you hear about coaches and job security and how at the higher level, job security is not that great. Like you have a losing season, you're at risk. Um, at the division three level, it is not the same. Um, it's really, um, I wouldn't say as professional as the division one level and um, revenue based and everything. So it's a lot more difficult when you have a coach that is negatively impacting your experience. And even when you have a losing record for two or three years straight, nothing's really going to change. And it doesn't matter that you could go to the higher ups. And um, that's really unfortunate. And not just for women's sports, but women and men's sports in general. Um, I just think we have this experience for four years. Um, if we have that, that same experience for more than two or three years, you're getting burnt out and you lose the love of the game. And it's so unfortunate that you work your way all the way up to that point. And it's just not enjoyable anymore. And I know you can probably relate the exact same way. Yeah, it's, it's great that you mentioned like D3 because, you know, everyone thinks when they think college sports, they think of just, you know, D1, but like D3 athletes and D2 athletes go through the exact same thing. Like it's not anything different and they don't get enough credit. Honestly, they don't have enough funding. It's really a shame because they do the same work. Um, but again, the NCAA only puts money towards people or sports that build them revenue and make them money like the whole NCAA women's basketball tournament like we all know how that played out where you know they had this little tiny workout room that looked like an apartment gym and then the guys had the entire like athletic or the the entire gym with like the right equipment and stuff and so I just I think that women are always put on the back burner um and that kind of goes for everything but especially in sports like Unfortunately, we don't make it that like people don't watch women's sports. And I think women are great at sports. Like that's just a fact, but some people, you know, they don't believe that. Um, but the other thing is, you know, coaches are the same across, whether it's D1, D3, D2. Um, it's really hard to find coaches that actually like care and want you to succeed after sport. And that's another thing. I mean, I could go on, but um, I will just say that like sports, life after sports, the NCAA doesn't give you enough, not enough time, but like they don't put enough energy into creating something that you can develop after sport or like sport is the only thing that you think of and that's what you should be doing for four years. And then once that ends, like you're on your own. So like they don't necessarily prepare you the best. And I definitely was lost after I stopped and I was <laughs> literally just taking classes like I was like I don't know let's just try this and see what I, I had no idea what I liked like I had no other hobbies I just was very lost 
Um, so I, that was my personal experience, but I'm sure other, like I know other athletes have felt very lost after sport ended. So. Yeah, I can definitely relate. And I also think um, social media has been a blessing and a curse, um, but I think a blessing in many ways of exposing these like inequalities and inequities that women athletes are, are facing because if we don't have this platform to share our voices and to see these pictures of what the inequities actually are at the division one basketball championships for men and women like seeing this is really exposing it and i don't think this is anything new we're just able to share it on social media and connect with others and, and really see that and use our voices yeah and like i after that came out i was like i'm I, I was not shocked whatsoever. I was like, this is a normal occurrence. Like I, like, I unfortunately didn't compete, but I know my teammates that were still on the team, they barely had enough food, like, to eat, basically. Like, the meals weren't as great as the men's tournaments and all that stuff, and, like, it goes into funding and all that. So I, like, I understand, but, like, normal people that don't that aren't involved you know they see it as like a shock but like we, it's honestly just has been going on for so long that like it's good that something is happening now I just wish it happened a little bit earlier but it does pave the way for other you know sports and women's sports like people are actually like oh this is happening we can probably do something about it so For sure. Um, I like how you were bringing up the fact that it's just, you know, this has been happening for a long time. It's just right now you're hearing about it more because of the society we live in. And there's certainly a lot of trendy topics that you're hearing a lot about right now. Uh, and I'm really curious to get your perspectives. And I'm going to ask a lot of people this question here. Uh, the perspectives you two have on what we're seeing right now with transgender athletes. Um, so when we have people who were biological males who are undergoing some type of transition process and now competing in women's sports, we did a whole podcast episode in the past. Bridget was actually a part of that. Um, really appreciated that uh, in the past about that issue. And we talked a lot about the scientific side of things. Um, but I, I'm just curious to hear more perspectives and opinions. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this the only option? Should there be other options? Uh, there, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm just curious to hear what you uh, feel about that. Oh, me? <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, I honestly think like inclusion in sports is a big topic as well. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, already have issues with you know, transgender, LGBTQ. Um, I honestly think it's a great way to just pay for, cause like sports is for everybody. It shouldn't be just for men and women. Um, so I, I believe that it's great that we're finally including transgender into it. Um, and it really shouldn't be like just men and women sports. Like you know, the football kicker from Vanderbilt, she ended up kicking in one of, like, she was the first woman to kick in a uh, power five, like, football conference game, which was great, <laughs> but everyone saw that as a problem for some reason. I have no idea why, but I just, I think sports is a great way to include everybody, no matter gender, race, all of that, so I think it's great that we're 
find like finally actually trying to do something about it and kind of pave the way for like future generations. Yeah, I agree that inclusion in sports is is very important. Everyone should, you know, have a place and feel comfortable. Um, just one comment that I have on the kicker, Sarah Fuller, who yeah. um, was able to kick for Vanderbilt. It is incredible. It's really cool that she was able to do that. Um, however, I do have another opinion that if we are striving to be equal, especially in the media, um, she got a lot of attention, which is which is great for her. But if we want equal treatment between men and women, that's not really equal either. So I think that the media and everyone in general just needs to find a balance with that. Um, there isn't a female football team, so that is her chance time to shine on the men's team. Um, but again, you know, if we want everything to be equal and treated similarly, um, I think it was a little biased, obviously, towards her, um, which if she's one of the first, probably will be like that. Um, but in the future, I think they should find a, a more of a balance between that and the media. Yes, to totally agree. I, I think I was just making the example of that. But you do bring up a good point about being equal in a sense of, you know, having a women's football team or, you know, something along those lines, but the media portrays women athletes different than they do men. And that's like a whole, that's a whole nother section. Um, that's a whole nother topic, but I do agree that if we're going to try to make sports equal, then it has to be a little bit more equal than just all the attention on her um, but it doesn't take away from what she did it just would be better if it was a little bit more equal so yeah for sure and I think one of the other things too that it just makes it seem like when you're looking at the all the social media posts about and the articles about her kicking it it just almost made it seem like oh my gosh a, a girl can kick a football can you believe it a girl can kick a football through the post and it's like there are a lot of us that probably could do that. Um, so that's also another point of it too. Like almost any female soccer player could practice and do that. Um, so, I mean, I haven't practiced and done it, so I probably shouldn't say that without trying it. However, <laughs> it just does seem like how they were portraying it is like, oh my gosh, can you believe it? A girl can do this. And I think it's also like society also just like portrays women as not you know, being able to do anything like athletic, that they're not physically capable of something. So I think that's also like a society thing is like, you're trying to change that shift and, you know, perspective or change your mindset of like, people are just people, like they are humans, doesn't matter the gender, but unfortunately the society we live in, you know, really makes that difference between men and women. And now we're just like seeing a change. So I definitely agree that it's like it was a big deal because she's a girl and she could kick like I'm pretty sure I'll like soccer play like she was a soccer player so I mean it wasn't totally off so yeah uh I when I played football in high school I was the kicker and I was not that good I guarantee you Bridget could kick better than I could um back then and know, even right now um my my money would be on her um so just throwing that out there I'm but no I you brought up some hot terms right now I heard terms like equality in there and one of the things that I'm concerned about and again this is um, just the outsider perspective here. So this could be totally wrong. Uh, this could be totally right. This is, you know, up to the discussion to decide. Um, but I'm concerned about um, the issues that we might see with Title IX type things in that 
any anyone who identifies as a female now has access to women's locker rooms and women's facilities and stuff like that. And I, I'm personally concerned about things uh, from a privacy standpoint where um, I, I'm not a girl. I'm, I don't identify that way. I want to make that clear. But I can understand how someone uh, who is a girl might feel uncomfortable um, if someone who uh, they're not used to seeing in the locker room comes in for the first time and, um, you know, things are just different for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, that's not politically correct in any means. I'm not a very good politically correct person and I apologize for that, but I'm um, curious, hopefully you two get what I'm trying to say and um, hopefully you can shed a little more light on that. Yeah, I think it would definitely be weird in the privacy standpoint um, if a transgender female um, that it was a biological male was now in my locker room changing. I think it wouldn't just be uncomfortable for you know some current females, but also for that the transgender female. I feel like they they would also be uncomfortable. And as much as we strive for inclusion, um, I don't think that's the the places like the sharing the same locker rooms and everything. Still, I feel like. Um, I wouldn't say they have to go in the men's locker room, but I would say there should be an alternative place. Um, I don't think it's all about if, if they don't identify as a male anymore that they shouldn't be forced there, but um, females shouldn't be forced to feel uncomfortable either. And I think that's ridiculous to just assume that all of a sudden, yeah, we're gonna be fine with this. And there's gonna be a very big transition period for our comfortability and, and everything like that as well. Yeah, totally agree. I think there should just be a space where they feel comfortable because, I mean, whether you like it or not, people are going to be uncomfortable either way. And so like, this is new for everybody. So trying to find like a balance between that. And like, if you're sticking them in, like, you know, they transitioned and they, you know, you stick them in a female locker room, they're going to feel uncomfortable too, while everyone else feels uncomfortable. So trying to make a, a space where, you know, there's neutral locker rooms or, you know, there's like, there's neutral bathroom bathrooms, some places now, but I think creating a space where they feel most comfortable um, would probably be the best solution. But again, that also goes into like infrastructures and stuff like that. And like where you actually can implement this is really the issue here, so. Right, because as you said, it's all about the money um, ultimately. But I, I think we've touched on a lot. We've said time and time again that there's a huge lack of funding problem. Um, so it would be nice if that was somehow magically corrected. Obviously nothing happens overnight. Um, but if there was ways to help course correct that and kind of find a way to provide an equal opportunity for everyone that gives a similar outcome. Um, so I don't know what that looks like, if that would mean, you know, we have a men's league, a women's league and leagues for um, athletes who are transitioning in between. I don't know if there's like, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the answer is. Um, hopefully someone hears something in part of these episodes that leads them closer to that uh, episode. But as we've been showing, there's a lot of issues here. Um, so, you know, anything else you can add to this? Sorry, I randomly muted myself there. Jeez, not going to be able to edit that one out. 
good job, Dan. Um, but yeah, anything else you can add to that or, you know, talking about these funding issues or the health issues or the comfort issues. I mean, we're talking about a lot of different things here and I, I don't know what, you know, the experiences that you've all been through have been like as far as being an athlete, traveling, experiencing different things at different places, different facilities, all these different things. But uh, I, I think this is great stuff so far. So keep going. <laughs> yeah, I like that you mentioned that. It's it's literally so many different aspects and areas of discussion that you have to consider and think about. And I think um, the NCAA and many different schools that wanna, wanna expand and have these opportunities for transgender student athletes, uh, I think they're kind of jumping the gun and not like considering all of these different aspects that female athletes are gonna be affected by, and not just female athletes, but everyone. If the NCAA is pushing this so hard, then they should be worried about the funding. It shouldn't have to be anyone else that has to worry about the funding, um, but them. And I think just taking a step back as well, this is gonna be mainly a state by state decision for transgender athletes um, because there are already states. I think there's almost up to five states that have completely, you know, passed law and said, we will not have this. Like we, we don't, are not gonna have female transgender student athletes playing on the female teams um, when there's so many more risks that outweigh the benefits. And I really, am, I really wanna know what are the numbers? Like how many transgender student athletes are being affected by this? Um, Cause honestly, I mean, I don't, I'm not aware of any and that could be that I'm just ignorant to the fact and I'm not around them as much. Um, but you know, how many people are going to be affected by this if it doesn't, um, you know, go through and everything. Um, but also how many female athletes are going to be uncomfortable and how many female athletes is this going to affect, um, like you said, in the locker room, during travel, on the playing field? What are the inequalities there? So I just think the risks are a lot more detrimental than the benefits. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of topics that you could get into. Um, mainly it's just the funding is honestly that like is one of the biggest issues um but yes i agree with bridget that you know how many student athletes are these gonna affect and you know how many of their like careers are gonna end because someone else decided that you know that was gonna happen um but i just there's so many things that you can change, but you need the people to actually, like you need actual people that care to change it and implement it and actually actively, um, like actively want to help. Um, but I just, there's so many issues that you can talk about and like, I have so many like opinions on it that, you know, people might not agree and that's totally fine. But I think that the NCA needs to put more funding into mental health services, uh, honestly better. Um, I mean, most of the medical services are like great at certain schools. If your school has money, then you have better, you know, locker rooms, you have better um, athletic training facilities, all that stuff. Um, but I think they just need to put more funding in different areas than what they're putting in now, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, like, like we said, it always comes back to the money. Um, but ultimately, 
even if you had all the money, it's hard to find a resolution to all these different problems that we've been talking about here. Um, and, you know, I think a big piece too, and the whole reason we're doing these uh, series, this series and talking with so many different female athletes is no one's asking women what their opinion is and what their perspectives are. Um, and I don't know why that is. Um, and, you know, you being in the sports world um, across the board here from sports management to athletics, maybe you can speak more on this, but I just don't quite understand why, you know, people are making the decisions on, you know, women's sports and women's athletics without, from what I can tell anyways, without talking and consulting with the female athletes themselves. I mean, to me, it seems like that would be a common sense first place to start, but uh, not, not in the least, I know. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, men are deciding what women should be doing essentially and I mean that goes for outside of sport but the sport industry especially is very male dominant like male dominated um there's very few women in high rank like high level um positions and it's really hard to work your way up and you know when I first started the program my program was a two-year program um I went to University of San Francisco um and it's a really well-known program. And a lot of alumni are, you know, scattered throughout professional sports, nonprofits, um, college, like pretty much a very wide variety. But the one thing they did tell us, especially like us women is, you know, it's gonna be really like, it's gonna be hard to get into the, like into the sport industry and like get your foot in the door. <laughs> but the fact that you're a woman is gonna be that much harder and I don't know why it is I can't explain it but I just know like even in my internships like I was fortunate enough to intern at UC Irvine for their compliance department and I <laughs> I thought I wanted to do compliance but unfortunately rules and stuff like that's great like it was great to learn but I didn't see it as a like career that I could do long term um, but my boss she was um, she was the assistant athletic director for um, compliance at UC Irvine and so it took her a long time to get to where she was and she was just like telling me you know it took her like 10 years to get up to that spot and I was like <laughs> I was like I don't want to take 10 years to get up to a high level position but I mean that's kind of just the way it is um, I don't want to say like you have to take it like that, but it's just, it's really hard to break into the sports industry already and then trying and then being a woman is just like 10 times harder. <laughs> so I don't know why it's hard, but I, there is a shift um, now, but I mean, it's other women have paved the way for us to be in those higher positions um, and like really care about student athletes or professional athletes or whatever the case may be. So um, 
I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I like and appreciate how you have the ability to talk in the perspective of both an athlete and, you know, an admin with your background and knowledge in sports management, uh, because obviously a lot of the issues at sports, you know, you can't blame the athletes for the issues. They're the ones that are just kind of playing the sports here. It's the people that are kind of higher up. Uh, and, you know, they say to kill a to kill a snake, you have to cut off its head. So if you want to tackle this problem, you have to start from the top and work your way down. Um, and you brought up some good points there that you're seeing women, especially in a lot of, you know, higher ranking uh, positions in sports. Um, one of the uh, young, uh, young women who we're going to have on um, in a couple days, we're recording one part now where we've got a lot of other recordings to go. Um, one of them is actually a uh, referee and uh, official uh, for different uh, sporting events, you know, varsity, collegiate, that sort of thing. Uh, but you're even seeing that on the TV now. You see um, the NFL games have female referees. Uh, MLB has female umpires. I mean, stuff that you didn't see 20 years ago, for sure. Yeah, and it's cool because one of the um, assistant coaches on the SF Giants baseball team um she actually is from our part, like she's an alumni from our program. Um, and she like worked her way up to that position. Um, but I also think the other issue is that people just don't think that women have enough knowledge on sports to be able to coach, to be able to, you know, referee, to be able to do anything remotely close to coaching when they have a lot of different ideas to offer. And I think that in such a male dominated industry, it's very hard to break that cycle and really change people's perspective on, you know, women can do these things. Um, it's very unfortunate <laughs> that we have to work so hard to change people's perspectives on that. But at least, you know, it is happening. It is, we're working towards a change for that. Um, but I, I just think that, women have a lot to offer in all aspects. Um, and I think it's just about changing the, changing the system, breaking the cycle, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I just, I really hope that it goes in a direction where women can finally be like somewhat equal. Cause right now it's, it's definitely not. Right. Right. And I mean, it's so unequal that, like you said, you literally had your sports career decided for you by someone else. Like they didn't give you, you know, the magic eight ball and say, you know, your future is in your hands. Uh, they clearly made the decision for you, which, um, you know, that in itself should speak volumes about the kinds of problems we're dealing with here. Well, yeah, so a little bit about my story is that I ended up getting injured at the like very unfortunate time. And then it was right around the time recruiting happened, um, junior year of high school. And like, now that's another thing. Recruiting is crazy. Recruiting is getting earlier and earlier. And I don't like it. It's, I think it's, it's not promoting anything healthy in a sense. Um, just because kids 
around like freshman year, like middle, like they're starting like middle school, freshman year, although the laws, you know, the rule compliance rules is, you know, you have, you can't reach out to them until like end of junior, like senior year, I can't remember what the rule is, it changes all the time. But I just know the earlier and earlier you get into their heads that they're going to be college athletes, anything can happen in that time. Anything can happen in those four years of high school. I'm a prime example of that. Junior year, I got hurt. It was my very, honestly, it was my first injury ever that I've had in my career. And I just happened to, have, happened to be at the worst time. And then senior year, I tore my other one at the very end. And I almost like didn't believe that it would happen, but all the colleges pulled their offers. All the colleges stopped talking to me, except University of Washington is, which is how I ended up getting there. <laughs> but then I was super excited. I was really looking forward to it, forward to it because my club coaches weren't the best and I didn't have the greatest time. It was a very, very toxic environment. And then once I got to college, I was like, yes, this is, this is going to be great. Like, this is where everything changes. And unfortunately, it still happened to be the same stuff that happened in club where it was honestly just the same. And I was like, I was so naive that I didn't think that I would get kicked off the team just because I was injured. Um, and so the funny thing is I went through this program that they had for freshman athletes where it was just you do one month um, before like your actual semester or quarter starts and I was coming off my injury like I was barely able to walk by the time I got to summer like I was slowly starting to get back but like I could barely walk up the stairs it was very hard for me and so then all I could do in the gym was conditioning and like even conditioning gets so you know so boring and I just wanted to get back out there but the fortune the only reason why I tore my other ACL is because I didn't rehab my first one and that's because I didn't have the proper care didn't know anything about injuries especially ACL injuries no one taught me these things no one gave me the information I didn't even think myself to look it up so that kind of trailed into, you know, me putting pressure on my essentially good leg. And then I ended up all that pressure on that side ended up tearing that one. So I kind of was just like, well, now they're even, that's great. <laughs> um, but anyways, I ended up getting both of them done. And then at that, right at the end of the program in the summer, before we were supposed to go home, she was like, Hey, we need to like talk and I was like oh maybe it's just like a check-in didn't think anything of it went to her office and had this like worse like gut feeling that like something bad was gonna happen and sure enough I was <laughs> sure enough I was right but that conversation was we just don't think you're a good fit for this team and I was like like what do you mean she's like well you haven't really gotten to like know any of the girls mind you it was summer half of them were either out of the sport I mean were traveling or doing something else they just weren't there it wasn't like mandatory practice and she was like well you haven't gotten to know any of the girls and I was like I that I really don't know what to say to that and she's like well we just we just don't think you're a good fit and I was like so you're kicking me off and she's like no I wouldn't say kicking you off or just like letting you go 
And <laughs> she told me that it was because of my injuries when in fact it was because I was too fat and I was didn't look like the other girls in my class. And they were all very typical gymnast bodies. They were all really small, um, strong, and <laughs> I just didn't fit that mold. And I'm not going to lie, I definitely gained a lot of weight when I tore my ACL. I went through whole depression phase, like, well, not really a phase, but I went through a really tough time and they, no one was there to help me. <laughs> like it was just, I was on my own. So just thinking of that, after that happened, I got, I didn't know what to do and I hate her for this. And she's still coaching to this day. And she happened to do it to a few other teammates I know and other like their teammates it happened to as well so it's not just it wasn't just me um she just basically decided that I was done and didn't give me like a chance and so I made the wrong decision of trying to beg her you know to change her mind but her mind was already made up and unfortunately I wasn't on scholarship so there was really nothing that I could do better. I was a walk-on. I mean, I still got recruited, but there was nothing I could do to change her mind. And I just, I thought it would be different, <laughs> but it wasn't. And I just like, from that moment, I was like, this, this is just the way like sports is. And, you know, it didn't happen. It just ha didn't happen to me. It's happened to other people, but in like different sports, mm -hmm. but just like, learning that and like seeing that firsthand I just was like didn't know that happened and if I like if someone had told me I probably would have prepared better but yeah so long story short sorry about that. no you're good um I mean there's there's a lot we've got to unpack with that um but I mean in general um, you know, people's perceptions of sports, whether they love them or hate them, are often based by their own experiences. Uh, so there's people who go through their sports career and everything is picture perfect for them and they end up loving sports. Uh, there's people who don't have it perfect, but, you know, they still do pretty well with it and they enjoy it. And then there's people who they you know, engulf themselves in athletics. And then all of a sudden something happens, something that they weren't planning or expecting this obstacle gets thrown in their way and it just completely derails them. Uh, and, you know, it, it makes you question everything because you yourself said you were doing gymnastics since you were two years old. And then all of a sudden, one day out of nowhere, uh, this lady who you barely even know decides that your career is over for you and you know the mental health side of things there the mental health implications that you experienced are very common problems amongst other uh female athletes and not just those that you know might end up getting to use her words uh released or let go or cut from the team um, but ones that are currently on the team in order to maintain, you know, these ridiculously unrealistic expectations, they're pulling in, you know, these 1200 calorie a day diets, they're doing all these extreme things. Um, there's some uh, ladies that I wanted to have uh, on this section that couldn't um, make it because of time constraints and assignments and, you know, life. 
um, but I'm going to reference the story that uh, Chloe Davies shared um, a few weeks ago. She was uh, she's a Waco champion kickboxer over in the UK. Um, and she was telling about how in order to maintain uh, weight for fighting, uh, she was consuming 1200 calories a day. And then after she would eat, she would go to the gym and do cardio until the machine told her that she burnt that amount of calories because she had to keep her weight constant. Uh, uh, believe it or not, she ended up getting injured. Um, I know that is very hard to believe, um, but it just really goes to show that the things that are occurring in the sports world, and we don't have all the, I, I, I at least don't have all the proper terms and definitions and words for these things. Um, but there's clearly something more going on that's impacting uh, female athletes on a mental and emotional level that's carrying over into their entire life. And I don't know of anyone. I really hope there is someone out there that's looking into why this is and the studies on this, if there are any, and if not, maybe they're doing them. Uh, but no, I think everything that you just shared from your own story and experience speaks to a much larger problem that so many people are experiencing right now, unfortunately. Man, that 1200 calories. I, the, specifically in like gymnastics world, body image, nutrition, all of that was definitely like, not like it was put on the back burner in this in the sense of healthy nutrition but at the forefront like we got called fat we got called anything that you can think of and related to weight and it's not so prevalent in like women's sports as like like the media is not like pushing on it but it does happen coaches I know coaches that weighed like college coaches that weighed their student athletes and they had to make a certain weight and I just I wish they're like you know colleges have um, dietitians nutritionists that work closely with the athletes but not every school can have one and I <laughs> you're feeling your body for to do basically a job like unfortunately sports is a job like athletes work 20 hours or more um, to compete. And if they're not fueled right, they get injured or, you know, whatever the case may be. But if you're not putting the right stuff into their bodies, then it's not gonna, you're not gonna get a good outcome. So I just, I don't know why colleges don't put more funding into that part because that's an essential part for athletes. Like if you really cared about athletes, you would have mental health services that more are more accessible. You would have more nutrition options, you know, whatever the case may be. But I just know that growing up, we were called fat all the time. Like since I was like, not me personally, I think I was called fat like in probably in like sixth or seventh grade. I weighed like 90 pounds and that's apparently like too big for a gymnast. By the time I got to high school, they made me run around. Actually, no, after I got hurt, they made me, because I got too big, they made me run around the building in the dead of summer <laughs> for an hour straight 
And I was like, I was the only one. I had to run around the building because I was too big. So there's a lot of coaches that do some crazy, crazy stuff. And it's very unfortunate. But the whole body image thing in sports is a very not well enough topic. Like it's up there with mental health, but people kind of put it on the back burner because it's not it's not like a big topic, but I actually did a um I did my thesis, my master's like thesis on body image in women's sports. And I did I want to say like 10 plus interviews and people emailed in, you know, their own experiences. And about like 90% of all the women I've talked to were lost out of sport. They didn't know what to do. They had very bad, healthy eating habits, didn't like their body, didn't know how to work out, just all the things. And that kind of just ties back into how is the NCA preparing you for life after college? They are not doing a great job. And that's kind of what fueled me to want to be, you know, an athletic academic advisor or work in the athletic space. But again, it's really hard to break in. <laughs> um, so it's just like kind of is like a, a really bad cycle. And, you know, I've struggled with all of that stuff, you know, body image, um, I, once I stopped gym, I had no idea how to work out. I never set foot in a gym. Like that wasn't like a gymnastics gym. I never, like, we never picked up weights. I've never squatted before. <laughs> like I had no idea and I had to learn about it. And it's like just taking me until now to like feel comfortable, like feel confident in working out and actually like liking to work out because I hated working out. If someone wasn't forcing me to do it, then I probably wouldn't do it. Um, but like that athlete in you wants you to work out because <laughs> like, I don't essentially want to get fat. And I know I'm not like, I know I'm not fat. It's just that when they teach you those things at a really young age, it sticks with you. And it's very hard to train your brain not to think in that in that way. So again, there's a lot of things that are intertwined in here. Oh, for um, sure, for sure. So, <laughs> you know, this is definitely some heavy, sensitive stuff. Um, and you know, just hearing your story, uh, I guarantee you, we're gonna get messages from people who've listened to this and have gone through the exact same thing. Uh, that's just how life is. Uh, now, we we've talked a lot about you know the problems. Uh, and I guess, you know, we got a couple minutes left here. I'd be curious to hear if you have any thoughts on solutions, since you did do a master's thesis in this, as you said, um, you know, is it the NCAA that's the problem? Or is it maybe the fact that it's the youth side of things? You know, a lot of times you're stuck getting any kind of coach you can get sometimes, at least for some sports, a lot of times they're volunteer coaches. They might not know any better. They might not have training. Is it the problem of the youth? Is it the problem of the NCAA not providing? Or should that be a college um, issue the college should be providing more is there maybe just a lack of communication between between the NCAA and colleges is it on the coaches is it I, I just don't know what the you know where to start with solving these things is and I'm curious to see uh, what you can offer as far as solutions here honestly I had like <laughs> 
I don't really don't know what the solution is, but we got to do something about one of these topics and it kind of will just like not work itself out, but it definitely will because everything is intertwined. Um, but I think the biggest thing is that the NCAA has makes so much money and they only put it in certain amount of sports and the sports that they put it into are sports that make them money. They don't care. They don't give a shit if <laughs> they don't give a shit if you don't make them money. So again, it comes back to money. And I think that the NCAA has all the tools and resources to make athletes really want to compete because I know I'm not saying that every athlete feels this way, but I know a lot of athletes feel that the NCAA can do more, can provide more, and they need to just put it in resources that are beneficial to athletes instead of making it all about the money. And it does go back to youth too. Like I'm seeing a shift in coaches, like young coaches coming in like that or former athletes that had bad experiences and trying to change that culture, which is great, but it's really hard to get the coaches that are instilled in that you know very like toxic like coaching mindset that it's kind of hard that when young coaches come in there's like an off balance essentially um but I think really the solution is just the institutions NCA needs like they need to work together and I'm sure there's people fighting for this, but it's like, it's unfortunately it's not enough and we need to do something because so many athletes want to do college like sports or professional sports or something, but institutions aren't giving, really giving you that opportunity to do it. So essentially I just, I think they need to, they need to actually care about their athletes because they're really the ones that are making you money and providing that for you. So the least you could do is give something back to it. Um, and I think youth sports, I don't know, like youth sports are kind of like, it's either you do them or you don't. And I, there's not a lot of encouragement for youth sports, which I don't know why, but I just feel the more you can encourage kids to, you know, get out there, love the sport that's just gonna fuel a healthy like mindset all the way throughout life so I think it's a collective effort that's essentially what I'm trying to say but I don't think there's one like right there's not one solution to this there's other things that you have to take into account and you need certain people to make that happen and unfortunately you can't force anybody to do anything they will actually like have to want to do it and want to support athletes so for sure um no, no magic bullet here but you know piece by piece little by little you can eventually make a difference with everything as long as you're headed in the right direction and you know it it's painful for people to have to you know share stories like your own it's not easy uh but you know the hope is that getting enough people who have experienced things like yourself to continue to speak up and share and talk about everything like you are 
uh, hopefully that starts to send things in a more positive direction because it's it's unfortunate that people have had to suffer through others' mistakes. But if we can take those lessons and make sure that others don't have to experience those things, then at the end of the day, uh, you know, what more can we ask for? Uh, you know, we're humankind after all, but we often forget that we have to be both human and kind, uh, or at least it seems that the sports world does. Uh, so with that, I'm going to close out this piece of um, the uh, podcast. We've got a lot more to go. Um, I feel like most of my weekend is going to be spent recording and editing uh, pieces here. But Emma, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on with us. And uh, Bridget had to cut out there a little bit early. Uh, but obviously, huge thank you and huge shout out to her uh, for coming back onto a podcast. You know, it takes a, I like to say it takes a lot for someone to do a podcast episode with me, but it takes even more for them to agree to come back. Um, so thank you again. Yes, thanks for having me. That's going to do it for today's episode of the Brawn Body Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. If you could do me a favor, subscribe to the show. This way you don't miss out on any of our upcoming podcast episodes. Be sure to leave a review if you're listening on iTunes. And please share this episode with a friend, whether it's a direct show link or the post on Instagram, throw that on your story, whatever. Those uh, reshares really help us out a lot. And huge thank you again to these six amazing young ladies. Be sure to follow them and check out what they're doing and what they're up to. And with that, we'll see you next time. Thanks again.